Hello everyone and welcome to the third uh, interview of tonight, it's the final one. Uh, I'm John McKellar of Ballcaps and Bagpipes. And I'm Jason Durer, former league president and Baseball Scotland Hall of Famer. I'm also the owner of Dugout Classics. And the final interview we tonight is uh, one of the two men who got all this started, the Negro League uh, fundraiser, uh, Tad Richardson. Welcome to the show, welcome back to the show. This is my first time speaking with you Tad, but you were obviously one of the two uh, guests on the very first one of these interviews. Uh, say hello. Yeah, hi. Thanks for thanks for uh, taking the time. I thought it would be a, a good time to join today after we had our little deal with Microsoft today and and just a, a chance to touch base and get some feedback and give some and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's great to have you back on and a uh, good chance to catch up, as you say. Um, let me start by asking, overall, uh, how is the NLBMR fundraiser going? Um, I, th I think really well. Um, I, you know, generally speaking, the, the one thing that has gone superbly is the creation of community. Uh, and you guys have been a big part of that, a really big part of that, frankly. Um, but, but to me, that, that in and of itself is a success. Um, we have no idea how much money we're going to raise. Um, I have no idea and didn't really even want to venture a, an estimate when we started this thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, and, and we don't, you know, we don't know if each individual, you know, artist and vendor is going to have the, the same level of success. We just don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know, but, but the one thing that we've absolutely really firmly established, I believe is community. And that's, that's where everything starts. So it's yeah, funny you mentioned that. that. I, I just checked to see where Dugout Classic was, and I can confirm we just made a thousand dollars. That's awesome. Um, what I was going to say there, uh, you mentioned community and stuff. Um, irrespective, I think, as well, of the financial success of each of the individual artists and of the project as a whole, what this has also in our experience speaking to the sort of was it 36 artists that we've spoken to so far, we have another five to go this week. Um is the story of the Negro Leagues has come to the attention of many of them for the first time uh, in full uh, through doing this. So the knowledge and the conversation around the Negro Leagues 100 years later um, has expanded so much just in the small space of these few weeks and, and getting ready for this fundraiser. Um, so it's succeeded on several fronts, the community, uh, hopefully. Um, artists are gonna be able to raise a fair amount of money for the museum itself. Uh, particularly in challenging times like these. I think uh, a little help, of course. Um, and also just the story of the Negro Leagues has uh, expanded so much just by the people who, who are involved in this being involved. You know, getting involved, looking up the Negro Leagues, researching players, researching teams, researching, you know, the, the reason that the league existed in the first place. Right. Talking to us about it, talking to other podcasters, Matt, I know, and Two Strike Noise and Blake. Uh, have been talking to people, um, you know, and just starting a new dialogue about both the Negro Leagues, but also baseball as a pastime, uh, as, as in a, such an American, it's American at its core, and it is the story of America, it's the story of baseball, um, but it's also international, and everything's all woven together, and we're all, it just comes back to that word you use, the community. Um, and it's uh, it's been just a, an absolute pleasure to be part of that. Um, yeah. 
I've I've lost my train of thought a wee bit because it's uh, oh, beautifully beautifully said. You, I mean, what more is to say? <laughs> that, thank you, thank you for pointing that out because a hundred percent. That that's another one of the things that come out. It's like you know, I I'm not getting paid for any of this. Nobody you know is who's putting this thing you know or coordinating this thing. Um, we're all just working um, um, out of you know love of what we're doing. And so every time something happens that, uh, you know, was unexpected or, or is, you know, witness to someone's growth um, or just a new connection, um, a, new, a new level of understanding, whatever it is, it's like, those are checks. Those are checks that I, I am cashing or, or I'm not cashing. I'm putting them right into the bank, right? I, I mean, that's and it's it's really it's really something and so what you just said is is amazing uh, and and you're absolutely right um one, one of the things um so today we we did a uh, a panel discussion with microsoft um and it was with bob kendrick and byron motley joined us as well as bill cormalis jr from modern baseball art and uh, Teddy Phillips, another one of our artists who is a Microsoft employee, was our moderator. And, um, and so the, the purpose there was really to be, uh, so this is the really cool thing about that event, is that Microsoft has a, a policy where um, if, if their employees are spending a specific amount of time learning about how to become engaged with nonprofits, eligible nonprofits, they're actually able to donate their time. Uh, 25 bucks an hour. So everybody, every one of the Microsoft employees um, who attended the sync today was able to donate $25 of time um, for <laughs> being there. And so, um, so it gave Bob an opportunity to give a little brief history about the museum, uh, about the, the leagues themselves um, and gave um, Byron an opportunity to come in and tell some really great stories about his dad. He shared a picture of, uh, of his dad yesterday. That's one of those checks that I, that I put in the bank. Um, just, and like this, this picture, uh, of his dad is, is one of the first memories I have of learning about the Negro Leagues. So, um, you just having an opportunity to engage with a guy like that is amazing, but to, to bring the level of awareness to people who maybe didn't have any at all, um, or thought that they knew something or they, you know, just knew, you know, Jackie Robinson and Satchel Paige. Um, is amazing, and and for some reason kind of unexpected. Like this this uh, thing. Like I I've said it before. I'm guilty of, of believing that everybody had the same level of understanding of the Negro Leagues that I do, um, which is not complete. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it's really cool. It's really cool to hear people be so open about what they didn't know, um, what they want to learn, what they want to take from it. It's great to have Bob's guidance, you know, on what lessons should be taken from the leagues that, that, yeah, it, it would, they were born from something ugly, but what they built was beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of what we're doing, right? We're, we're, we're all a bunch of struggling <laughs> artists and small business people, and it's an ugly time right now. And we're trying to, to, you know, set the stage or, or have people think about things differently. <clears throat> help and people think about things differently. Jason, do you have anything to add there? 
No, I was gonna let you take this part of the conversation, <laughs> and then I'll ask him about curveball keepsakes because he wants to yeah. talk shop a little bit. So okay, um, before we do, then I'll just continue a wee bit. Um, I just wanted to point out as well, uh, <laughs> in addition to the sense of community and, and what we've already covered, I have vicariously managed to live thirty plus childhoods growing up watching baseball and collecting baseball cards by speaking to all the different people that we've spoken to. Something I never had a chance to do, obviously being a, a Scot here. Um, I ran into baseball by accident through video games. Um, it was actually through a video game that I first learned of the Negro Leagues in 2004. Oh, wow. uh, the All-Star Baseball 2004 game. I've told this story before. Jason's probably bored to hear it, but I'll tell you it as well. Um, so All-Star Baseball 2004 had like a, so something similar to what MLB The Show has where you collect the cards and, and stuff like that. But some of the cards were, it wasn't just players or stadiums, there were also like videos you could unlock. And one of the series of videos that you could unlock was an interview uh, with Buck O'Neill. And uh, he talked about the Negro Leagues and, and stuff like that and what they meant. Um, so I encountered Buck back in 2004 and I never had uh, a massive amount. I had seen a, I think I'd seen a biopic or Satchel Page as well. Um, but I think that came afterwards. It'll come afterwards. Yeah. Um, but no, it's like I managed to get like that little kind of snapshot of the Negro Leagues, um, and I've always had a, an interest in it. Um, it's like I've said, the story of baseball is the story of America, and it has a lot of beautiful things in it. You know, baseball is probably the most beautiful game in the world when it's uh, played in its purest form. It has a lot of ugly things in it as well, um, and it's important to keep the ugly as part of the discussion. So that it can be used to merge into the beautiful and make something that's even better, something richer, something that you'll learn from, um, right. you know, and, and that we can pass on to the future and say these players were segregated for no reason other than the colour of their skin, but they didn't let it defeat them. In fact, right. they rose above it and became something more than they could ever have hoped to be before that. Um, you know, when Rube Foster created the Negro Leagues, he created a league that was matched, if not bettered, a lot of Major League Baseball at the time. Um, they created an entirely new way of marketing baseball. They created an entirely new way of playing the game. And now you fast forward 100 years from when that was established in the all-time home run kings, uh, the top two are black men. Um, you know, some of the greatest young players in the game are black men. Uh, some of the, we just lost uh, Bob Gibson, a black mm -hmm. athlete who was a formidable starting pitcher, struck out 17 men in a World Series game. That could never have happened if it weren't for Rip Foster in the Negro Leagues um, and the progress that they forced America to make. Um, it's a beautiful story and uh, it's one that needs to be told. And it's just been so special to see all these different, you know, people from so many different backgrounds and from so many different countries come together and learn from each other. You know, this amazing story that maybe not all of them had uh, a huge amount of uh, knowledge of before they came yeah. in and it's just it's a, a special special thing it is it, you know it's one of the things that we put in the the you know the well this is just this this campaign i mentioned before is is modeled after a, a different campaign that i've done before um that that was a benefit for meals on wheels um mm -hmm. uh, and uh and benefited locally owned restaurants and and what what i would tell everybody with that campaign is that what, what I, I believe is that uh, we have to seek uh, or sometimes even force common ground on, on things uh, in order to start difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. 
And so in, in, uh, with that, with that, uh, the campaign is called uh, Waffles for Wheels. So with that campaign, what I would tell people is that what I, what I absolutely want to have happen is for people to, for all kinds of people to see the value of going in and supporting a, a locally owned restaurant and having their breakfast uh, be a benefit to a locally owned charity or a local charity. And, um, and then have the byproduct be, you know, this old you know, white haired man sitting next to a, a young blue haired trans person, you know, because exposure um, to what's different is the first step and, and, and common grounds are necessary. And so in that case, the common ground is breakfast. In this case, the common ground is baseball. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we have this opportunity to use this game that we all have these deep connections with and is relatively universally loved, right, to, to start having some, some deeper conversations. That's what this is all about. Yeah, it's been a road in success in that regard, uh, for sure. Um, Jason, let's touch on Corporal Keepsakes then. I'll pass to you uh, before we, because we, I think, I have a feeling that we could go on literally all night and, um, you know, we, I got a bottle of whiskey, so I'm okay. So. <laughs> I, gotta a, I gotta go get another beer if we're gonna get two. <laughs> and it's only four thirty here, and I've got I've got work to do. Yes. So, <laughs> so you went to Bothell High, right? You're a Cougar. EHS. And then you went to Wazoo, so you're a Cougar again. <laughs> so we're going for that. So you finished college. You went to go work for the Mariners. Um, I spent four and a half years working in the wine and beer business, um, right out of college, which was great. Woodenville, uh, where are we going with this? Um, I was, it was at the time, it was the largest privately owned distributor of wine and craft beer in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, they've since sold out to like Columbia or somebody else, but back in the day, we were distributing like Widmer before yeah. Anheuser-Busch bought them. Um, we distributed uh, Deschutes, you know, like Black oh, Butte Porter. Um, uh, yeah, quite a few, quite a few of the early, the first. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I was, I was in the middle of the first boom of micro beer here in Seattle from 90, like four to 98. Mm -hmm. And then I briefly did something, uh, uh, left there briefly worked for this recruiting company. And when I did that, uh, I took a part-time job working for the Mariners. So 1998, I worked for the Mariners part-time just for fun, um, as a guest, guest services rep. Um, so, you know, I was, I still have my doc Martins that I bought for that job. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, uh, would just stand out in front of uh, Mariners games before the game and, and uh, you know, help direct people where to go, and then inside you help them ask, answer questions, and that kind of stuff. And then '99, um, the following year, I went to work for him full time. When and that was the year that Safeco Field was opened. Mm -hmm. um, after that, uh, I got laid off right at the end of that '99 season, after the ballpark was open. And then I uh, got into uh, advertising. That's and I've been in digital advertising from the start. So I was kind of involved in the, the micro beer boom in Seattle and then the tech boom later. Yes, I remember those. I remember the tech boom there because I was just at the tail end of that and watched the whole thing blow up. Um, but I remember those those adverts for Starwave, ESPN Starwave. Star <laughs> yes. Yep. 
Yep. If you played, if you played ESPN.com fantasy sports games in the early, early two thousands, you definitely had a star wave account. You remember seeing star wave and that was actually a, a company that was owned by Paul Allen mm-hmm. and they ran all of the backend operations um, for uh, ESPN.com's fantasy sports and then um, ad operations too. And then what happened is Disney bought star wave and that turned into the Disney internet group. And, um, and then I, I started there at the end of 99. And uh, so did some really cool stuff. I was like, I ran some of the first, um, the first ad campaigns that were cross platform for the X games. Like mm-hmm. when the X games first um, was televised and, and we had ESPN magazine, like I was there when the magazine launched um, ESPN, when ESPN radio launched. Um, so it was a really exciting time. Um, we got to do some pretty cool stuff. I mean, the dot coms were a lot of fun. I, I spent a lot of money on stuff that corporate paid for, and it was good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to ride that out. I rode out the bust, um, but I was witness to it. Um, one of the my favorite stories about the tech boom in Seattle, as specifically as it relates to sports, is um, in 2001 when the All Star Game was in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a company called seasonticket.com and they were uh, a a good friend of mine his brother-in-law was a partner in that company and they um, basically were just a video service where you could as a sports fan go in there tell them who your favorite teams were and then the next day you'd have these ready served um, video highlights Uh, they put all of their marketing budget in sponsoring the at least the ballots for the all-star game and uh, then went out of business shortly thereafter, basically because nobody had the bandwidth to handle what they were trying to, to do. Nope. And yeah, great, great concept, great company that was probably five to eight years too soon. Yeah, you look at the MLB, is it film room or real room or something like that it's called? It's just been kind of, I'm seeing that advertised a lot and it's pretty much something along those lines. You go in, you can look at every pitch since 2017 and you pick up. You know, I want to try and find all of like D.D. Gregorius, his three-run home runs, and then you yeah. put together your own highlight package and stuff like that. So, I mean, if only yeah. they had been able to stick it out a wee bit longer, they could have probably yeah. made a lot of money out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, back back in uh, 2003, um, we were part of the team at ESPN.com that launched one of the very first commercial uh, commercially uh, sold and available uh, data-based ad targeting um, technologies, which was from a company that was also based here, based in Bellevue, right near that old red line that we were talking about earlier, <laughs> uh, um, that was called Revenue Science at the time, then turned into Audience Science. But that that company developed uh, the very first data-based like ad targeting, like basically retargeting, and we deployed that um, on ESPN.com's golf section back in the day because it, inventory was always sold out mm-hmm. because of Tiger Woods. Right. So it helped, it helped us monetize um, the, the inventory that we basically couldn't sell. And so um, it was really interesting times back there. Then there was a lot of, of really cool things that were going on and it was the beginning of a lot of, of uh, changes um, in um, the way that we're, we're uh, advertised to. 
Absolutely. And and it's all your fault. I didn't I didn't build it, but I definitely figured out a way to to make it work. All right. Well, let's not talk about your corporate career. Tell me about how Curveball Key Six came around. Um, sure. I I'm not even wearing my 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 original necklace right now, but um I've got a picture of me in college somewhere where I'm wearing my little braided necklace that I made out of um, baseball yarn and so for a long time that was you know early 90s I was I had this idea in my head of of making uh, necklaces mostly out of braided baseball yarn and and then um, when the uh, I had all these props out for something I did earlier when um, the the big craze for these ungodly things you know hit the titanium braided things that's when i thought i should really go for this i should uh i should get some baseballs that have been used in major league games braid them into necklaces and sell these things because people are going to buy them like crazy and uh and so um i bought a baseball in 2014 uh, from major league baseball's auctions it was a Felix Hernandez pitch to Prince Fielder. And um, I just logged, you know, all the information that's available when it comes to you. It's all logged into MLB's database and then tore the baseball apart and started making stuff. Um, but the very first thing, and I, I'm kicking myself now, I was wearing it earlier. I don't know where it went. But my uh, just a real simple rope necklace um, with a magnetic clasp. And that became my first piece in, uh, I, I made that in like 2014. Um, and then um, I took a job back here in Seattle. I was living full-time in Spokane at the time. Took a job back here in Seattle. And, um, and that kind of derailed me. Um, I wound up getting laid off from that job and then starting my own ad agency, uh, not my own with a couple of partners. Um, in 2015 and then 2017 uh, I split from them and started doing this I don't want to say full-time but just kind of went for it had an opportunity to to invest some time and a little bit of money to to see if we could develop the product a little bit and um, I, I made um, uh, a bunch of stuff for uh, a Christmas bazaar in, at the end of 2017 for a high school baseball tournament fundraiser, and um, I brought I brought some of my early stuff there. A lot of necklaces. I made a few bracelets, and um, I sold thirteen hundred dollars worth of stuff in this first show that I'd ever done. And so I got real big eyes after that. And I thought, oh yeah, this is gonna, this is gonna happen. And uh, anyway, it's been, I'm pretty methodical when, when it comes to um, development of things. I, I, I like, I don't like to rush things too much. I like to let them develop. Um, and so it's been a couple of years of doing the markets, getting feedback from people, seeing what sells, what, what people like, what they don't. As it turns out, the necklaces don't really sell. Um, I've sold a few of them over the years, but these bracelets have really taken off. Um, so when I first started doing this stuff, what I would do is dye the yarn, the baseball yarn, 
I have some here. Some here. So we're good. Here's some. <laughs> There's yours. Is that mine? Yeah. So the yarn, I would just, I would initially, I would, I would uh, braid the gray and the white yarn with some colored hemp um, cord to do some, add some colors to it. And then I just started dyeing the yarn. And, um, and then I just, I, this braiding technique is really simple. I mean, it's honestly, it's a, <laughs> I did a, I did a market in Seattle one time and this probably you know, 60 some, 70 some odd year old lady came up and she was looking at my stuff and she asked me how I did the, the braids. And I told her and she goes, Oh, I did that in Girl Scout camp. <laughs> <laughs> so it truly is like, you know, it's, it's, it's Girl Scout craft, but it makes, I mean, actually here, <laughs> it makes real legit rope. This is a, a dog lead right. that I made. This is like a six foot long rope. Um, and you could moor a boat with this thing. I mean, it's it's legit. <laughs> is that from um, one baseball? This is all from one baseball. And this took about 10 hours to do. It's from a, a oh. Mitch Hanniger base hit, as a matter of fact. Right, okay. But I did this a long time ago just for the heck of it. It took, it took like over 10 hours. And I thought, well, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John, your Christmas present is not happening. <laughs> But, um, but the, the bracelets are the, the, the thing that I think is really cool. Um, they're, they're completely unique. There's nothing out there that's like them. I've seen some friendship style bracelet, bracelets lately. Um, the coolest thing that could probably happen is for somebody to copy them. Um, but, but for me, it was all about the yarn. The leather was a complete byproduct um, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I started making earrings. Um, and eventually I like did some like, like that, mm -hmm. where I like dye the leather. Um, these are from a, oh, <clears throat> Can, is that too blurry? Nope, uh, Gonzalez versus Upton and uh, Ball in the Duck. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, this was from that baseball. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, and I'm like, hey, I'm not a jeweler. Um, but I've taught myself how to do some basic jewelry stuff. Again, I, I <laughs> a couple years ago in Bellevue, um, I, there was this like bead store, this, you know, jewelry and bead store. And so I went in there and I had to buy some stuff and it's owned by, you know, these little old ladies. And, um, and so I started hanging out there and, <laughs> and they would do like classes and stuff. And, uh, and so I actually went there one day, I probably spent three hours and I was just doing my stuff and learning from this like uh, 85 year old um, uh, lady with white hair. Um, she was fantastic. She wound up buying some of my stuff because she was really sweet, but I, it's amazing. You know, again, it's like community. I was <laughs> teaching myself stuff that I never imagined I'd be doing. Um, and frankly, I don't see a future for myself doing this. I don't, uh, I'm not a jeweler and I don't intend to be one um, long term. Um, I think that this business, frankly, is one that I'm going to be like trying to figure out how to back myself out of um, uh, for a lot of different reasons. But, um, but I definitely have, a, have uh, had a lot of fun with it over the last couple of years. Um, 
it's I, I mean I make all kinds of stuff I've made cufflinks for people's weddings uh, at least two different weddings I made um, money clips for all the seniors um, on my son's baseball team a couple years ago um, who were mostly kids that I coached um, through Little League um, made some really really I made I've made several things out of you know um, families mementos you know there's you know the son's Little League home run in the in the state tournament that kind of thing so um, I've even done a few things with softballs I've even done some stuff with basketballs but um but yeah, the business, frankly, has been real quiet this year, and I haven't put any effort into it just uh, because I want people focused on more important things, I guess, this year. That's fair enough. Yeah, it, it's a crazy time for you back in the States. Crazy times for us out of here. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so, yeah, I've been, you know, obviously, well, this year, um, I was kind of fed up with the market scene. You know, where, where I was, I was, I was really enjoying it. Like I go do the Fremont Sunday market, you know what Fremont's like yeah. uh, here in Seattle and a real blast and a, another great opportunity to just have community and camaraderie with other vendors. But, um, you know, it's real sink or swim. And, um, and that's just a regular weekend market. But then there's the big, the big festivals and, and big shows where, you know, they're asking these small business owners and artists for, you know, 50 bucks to apply to their show and then 400 bucks to participate. And if you have a bad show, you're, you're, you're hurting. And that's happened to me. Like I've, I did a show in Seattle a couple summers ago where uh, the only thing that I sold was a tw single 25 cent baseball card. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so it's, it's, it's disheartening for me to see so many, see, see the opportunism that has popped up around the makers industry uh, um, in, in making money off of small business owners. Mm -hmm. Lots of opportunism, lots of people trying to make money off of small business uh, people. And, and that's, again, another one of the reasons why this campaign exists the way it does, which is grassroots this is all people helping people so speaking of people helping people on there do you see this continuing on huh. uh, in some form yes i do uh the the demand i think from within the community is certainly there um what what i think long term has to be uh considered is uh the format you know, and, and, um, and how it works. And I think that, that one of the, the really cool things that, that, uh, that I think I've uncovered throughout this whole thing is the fact that there's a lot of living player foundations and, and legacies out there that can be and should be honored um, just as we're honoring the museum, right? And so there's a lot of artists out there who love making art and are inspired by these people who have families um, that that uh, rightfully um, have rights to you know images and things like that so I think that ultimately the the format that I would love to see this thing take on is one where we create this real dynamic relationship between the arts community and all of these living legacy family foundations where we can create uh, revenue flow 
um, that should be going to those families that's maybe not right now. Yeah, no, 100% agree. I think everyone we've talked to said this has been awesome. They've loved every bit of it. And that this is in the same form next year and whatever form it should take, but they actually have more time to prepare for it because yeah. everyone's been like, it's awesome. Like I said, like, I think everyone was like, should I do this? Yes. Do I have time? Uh, not yeah, really. <laughs> not really. But everyone's made it happen. I mean, I think everyone's pretty much delivered besides a few people who went, you know what? I was going to run late, but it won't matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, I recognize right off the bat, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to promote my own business during this thing um, the way that I really need to. So I just said right off the bat, I'll donate 42% of sales through the end of October. I'll probably wind up doing that through the end of the year. But yeah, I think I think that there's absolutely some interest in in continuing this long term, and you know, in one way or another. But it's it's got to be done. It's got to be done right. And you know, this thing has moved this far without a single without a single signature anywhere. This is all grassroots, completely grassroots. And so, you know, unfortunately, I think that as we do move forward, it has to get more formal. Um, you know, NLBM Art is not an entity. Um, I was just talking with someone earlier today, NLBM art, you know, for all intents and purposes is, you know, Kaiser Sose. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, right? it's, 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 a, it's a group in the same way that like a bunch of kids in a treehouse is a secret society, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like we can, we can call this treehouse the whatever society, but it doesn't actually exist outside the four walls, it's, uh, which is also, again, comes back to what's special about the NLBM art uh, project is that it doesn't exist in any kind of structured sense. And that if something like this does exist moving forward, the potential it has yeah. to, to make change and to, like you say, help fund uh, you know, the estates of players who maybe, you know, a lot of these players wouldn't have been paid what perhaps they were worth. So their estates oh, sure would be as, as, as large as they should be. Um, and so to finally give a bit of that back um, and like a bigger and more expanded uh, uh, form. Yeah. Oh gosh. I just, <laughs> you just said something amazing. And then I just got distracted by looking down at, at something on my desk, which, rem <laughs> which reminded me of the wine beer days. I'm going to show it to you. And then I just completely taking this in a different direction. <laughs> but when I do you guys remember Doug Sisk? Doug what? Doug Sisk. Yeah. yeah. They called him Doug Risk <laughs> in New York. Yeah. I was oh. his boss. Right. You were his boss. <laughs> I was his boss. Yeah. He uh <laughs> this is funny, man. I was uh <laughs> I was just at work one day and this got a call from a guy who run, ran our beer operation. And he goes, Hey, I got a guy I want to send your way. I, I managed the merchandisers in this company. So it was like the people that put beer on shelves and stuff, built displays mm -hmm. in the grocery stores. And, uh, and if you wanted to get into sales, you had to go through the merchandiser kind of program first. And so I get this call from the beer guy and he goes, Hey, I got a, I got a call from a guy who wants to get into sales, but I, I told him to, to talk to you. His name's Doug Sisk. And I went, did he, did he 
Oh, and he goes, he says he went to Wazoo. Um, and I, and I'm like, did he play baseball? Yeah. Yeah. He said something about that. I'm like, and then I'm like, <laughs> shit. So I'm like, yeah, I'll interview him. And, and he, so, so, uh, Doug Sisk comes into, we had this shitty warehouse down in Renton and I had like a, uh, just a crappy folding table in this bare room to do in with probably stained carpet to do these interviews. And Doug Sisk comes in, he sits down at the table across from me and he puts his hands on the table like this. And he had, I think he had his, he had his world series ring on one hand and on the other, it was a NL championship ring or AL championship. I think it was NL championship from like 91 with the Braves. Right. And he just put his hands down on the table like that. And I just, I went, all right. So, uh, what do you want to know? And we wound up bullshitting about bird hunting in Pullman, um, more than, more than anything. And then, uh, and then, uh, I told him, are you sure you want this job? You know? And he said, yeah. And so I hired him and I think for like three months I was his boss before he went into sales. <laughs> That's pretty sick. sure he lived down in Tacoma. Because like uh, Todd Stoudemire finished his career and then went into uh, financial services. <coughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, as far as I know, Doug's, Doug Sis could very well still be slinging beer. It's not a bad business being, though. Yeah, he also um, did some <coughs> scouting, as I recall. He had like his whole scout bag in the trunk of his car that he showed me once. Ah, okay. Well, cool. Somewhere I've got, he autographed a card for me. I don't know where it's at. I don't know if that actually added value to the card or took away from the value. <laughs> Doug Risk. You want it, uh, with a nickname like Doug Risk, you know, obviously it was like uh, like Bobby Ayala, right? Yeah, yeah. Dad, right? You can't stand him, but now you think of him, you know, and it's somewhat endearing. No, it was interesting because um, was no, it wasn't Stuart. It was Les. Les is was it Les that had the son that made the pros? Yep. Yeah, yeah, Les, Les, Les Weber's son Thad, yeah, Thad Weber. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, so he was telling stories there, and, and so yeah, so it was interesting to kind of hear that. And he's a uh, scout for the Cubs, so we're going to try to get them back on at another point and have them both come on at the same time. And, that would be cool. Brains. Right on. Cool. John, do you want to ask your question? Because we both have to get back to work. <laughs> and we we know we can chat for hours so that this is a yeah. i don't have anything to do i just have the yankee game to get ready for in 20 minutes but you guys have uh, have stuff to do um so we always ask uh, at the end of each interview is tad uh, what the negro leagues uh, mean to you um normally i would add how did you get involved with the project but given that you started the thing uh we'll just stick with uh, as an american and as a you know as a baseball guy what do the negro leagues mean to you you know, it's funny. I didn't prepare for that question. I prepared for the, how did you start in baseball question? <laughs> ah, yeah, but we, we chatted so long about Bellevue and Kirkland that we just completely went way past that one. <laughs> this was my, this was North Shore school, uh, North Shore Little League, man. I was five foot one and uh, listed at 131 pounds. I was probably 140. <laughs> so, so before you go on, did you get your- 12 years old. <laughs> uh, you know the guy that would go around and take all the photos for all the sports team? It was Jose and give you nicknames like Chico and, and Pablo. Yes. 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 <laughs> it was awesome. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. 
So, John, you want to understand this? So, there was a guy, I can't remember what his name was, and he did all the sports, and he was this bubbly Mexican-American yeah. guy, and he would give everyone nicknames and just have you rolling, like you were Chico and Pablo and Jose, and he would just go to like give everyone nicknames. Yeah, that's funny. But anyway, um, what what the what the Negro Leagues mean to me is uh, what they've come to mean to me is just another symbol of of history that we uh, have not been taught. Um, pretty plain and simple. Um, that's what it symbolizes to me. It symbolizes to me uh, a part of, of our, our history that uh, has been swept under the rug. Um, you know, the fact that, that uh, the statistics for these guys uh, were, were so ill-kept, um, you know, everything about it was, was underappreciated. Um, and, and so for, for us to, to look back on Negro Leagues baseball, <laughs> nice shot, Jason. Uh, for us to now look back on Negro Leagues baseball, um, it, it would be, you know, I think completely inappropriate to only look at it in the context of baseball. Um, now, if you do, if you do, if you can just separate Negro Leagues baseball and just talk about what that means, I'm going to go right back to the word community. Um, that's what Negro Leagues baseball, uh, as, as uh, just a, a standalone um, you know, idea means to me is, is community. When I, I, I say this pretty often, there's been several images that I've seen now where I feel like, like I, can, I can feel what the game was like. Uh, I, can, I can hear music. Um, I can feel the sense of safety and camaraderie. Um, that that didn't that doesn't necessarily exist in in other places certainly did not exist in other places for for them back in the day right um so yeah it's it's two things when i when i think about the game itself i think about joy and i think about community um when i think about you know the overall context It's, it's hard not to think of it without some degree of shame, you know, for what we've not been taught and what we've not made an effort to learn, um, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that we've probably all heard about. We, you know, you, you, you can, can spend uh, several years, you know, aware of something without actually knowing what it was. And I think that what we're all experiencing is that with the Negro Leagues, Right, um, our, 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 we had maybe some surface level understanding and now we're starting to really dig deep. And I love that. Um, you pointed that out earlier. So yeah, those, I, I, would, I would look at it that way. Kind of those, those two things, joy and community and um, uh, the disservice that's been done to us as Americans by not teaching us the history of our country. Todd, it has been a joy to be part of this community and uh, before we open up a pack of cards here, before we head to bed, um, would you like to plug your social media and your websites uh, and also <laughs> the, uh, the website for sure. AMR? Yeah, yeah. So here's what we'll say about Curveball Keepsakes is that there's a whole bunch of merchandise on that website uh, right now. And there's probably about 80 to 90 times more um, that's sitting in boxes and stuff behind <laughs> me. So um, at Curveball Keepsakes, 
all one word, uh, is uh, Instagram handle, and we're online at curveballkeepsakes.com. I'm going to be donating 42% of all my sales um, to the museum through the end of the month. Um, I'll probably continue giving through the end of the year. Um, certainly we'll be giving through the holiday season. And um, if you get to the site and you like some of the things that you see, uh, ask what we, what you, about what you don't see. Um, give me a holler and, and ask uh, if we've got something from your favorite team or players. Probably do. And if there's any UK viewers that are watching this, we'll definitely hook you up on a, a discount getting the stuff over there. So, right, right. Well, well, I'll, I'm taking care of the shipping because everything's going to go to my, my brother's house. He doesn't know this yet. So sorry. <laughs> but everything's going to your it's house. Not a, it's not a good cause this time. It's not just the boxes of 2001 uh, baseball cards. It's not a, a good cause. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yes. Um, Tad, you are an absolute star. It's been a pleasure, as I've said uh, a couple of times already. It's been a pleasure to finally get a chance to speak to you properly. Um, thank you, you too, so much. Yeah, I'm, for... I'm, I can't believe that you shaved for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but seriously, thank you so much for uh, having uh, ball caps and my page be part of this. Uh, without that, I wouldn't be able to experience this. So uh, I really appreciate it, man. Um, on that note, Jason, let's uh, let's open some cards before we. All right, I know this is the best part, and I still have the Steve Blake card we pulled earlier. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> he has shown that to a few people. He's, he's he's pride and joy. It is. It is my pride and joy. So we got the eighty-seven tops. Woodies. Eighty-nine Donners. Yep. Nineteen ninety score. Is that the bow from the Frank Thomas? Okay. Ninety-one studio with that beautiful Steve Blake. Another one of those. We've got the 91 Stadium Club. We've pulled the Jeff Bagwell rookie. Yep, skinny Jeff Bagwell. Yeah, skinny. I, I have the card here. We pulled that one, right? So Saw 92 Donruss that has the Kawarukun Jr. autograph. 92 Pinnacle, which has the players' hobbies that are involved in that. Oh, yeah. Yep, Tom Glavin playing hockey. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. We only had, we've, we've pulled two John Wetlands playing uh, the guitar. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So your choice. Boy, um let's go with with like if I, I'll if I never open another pack of 87 or eight a tops or 89 donors, it's fine with me. Um let's go let's go with that that uh that score pack. Right. Okay. Which were terrible cards. Like, is that is that this year? Is that the Doug Sisk year? No, that's eighty-eight score. Oh, this is eighty-eight. Yeah, so it 90 is. Ninety score. All right. Well, hold on. Is it? No, not quite. No. Okay, that's eighty-eight score. Let's get the Greg Jeffries rookie in it. <laughs> <laughs> we pulled one. I got to send to Ramon. That's his favorite player. So we've got Skinny Jeff Bagwell, which I got to send out. And then there's the where to go. Because I put it aside for Ramon, so we're gonna consensual. Uh, That's right. It's like how how many is that Olerud? It is Olerud. Nice. That, he's in that one because we pulled that one. So right. when when I first got to Wazoo, uh, Olerud was was there. It was it was his. Uh, I think '88 was the year that he was the Collegiate Player of the Year. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was my freshman year. Because, uh, yeah, he left Interlake at 86. I know that. Yes. Yes. I, I can say I shared a field with him. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. Yeah, I was in the stands. That's it. <laughs> exactly. 
Anyway, I saw Todd Hollingsworth hit a home run in uh, in uh, Bannerwood. Bannerwood. <laughs> nice. Yeah, another one of those classic parks. If you grew up playing baseball here, you played at Bannerwood. Everyone played Bannerwood. All four high schools shared the same field. Yeah. All right. So here we go. We don't have Brett Boone. We have Bob Boone. Bob. Yeah. Uh, tail end of his career there. He still caught 131 games in 89. So that's not too bad. Wow. Todd Benzinger. <laughs> Thought he was going to be something. Yeah, it's funny yeah. when, when I, when I open these old cards, it's always what I, I can actually remember, right. The, ex, the, the excitement that you got, it's like, Oh, this guy's a pretty hot rookie. Todd Benzinger was one of those guys. Jody Reed was my one. When I got my cards over, I had about 30 Jody Reed rookie cards. <laughs> I can't tell you, like I, I had a stack of Mike Harkies. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Eddie Murray with the Dodgers. Yeah. Oh, Eddie Murray with the Dodgers. Come on, man. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. You got the Eddie Murray jersey <laughs> on. All right. But that was his first year with the Dodgers. He let hit that just was that was like, so this was my little league team, the Orioles, North Shore Little League. And that, those two years of playing Little League baseball, being an Oriole, sealed the deal for me. Like, Eddie Murray was my guy. It's the one rookie card that I you know, just had to have. In fact, I remember buying my very first, my mom bought me my very first price guide. Do you remember the little baseball card store that used to be in the Seattle Center? Yeah, uh, in, in the center house, little tiny baseball card shop. It was one of only a couple in town mm -hmm. in the early, early eighties. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember opening that thing up and I'm like, I've got a 1978 Eddie Murray. How much is it worth? And I scanned down, it's eight bucks. And I'm like, eight bucks. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. My Eddie Murray card was eight <laughs> bucks. The first price guide that I ever got. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, the center house was there. Uh, I also is that card shop still in Pikes Place Market? It is. Yep. Mm. Yep. It's not uh, so great. No, um, it's tiny. But I. Yeah. Yeah, let's see one it. of the things I was that that we never. One of these times we'll have to talk about is Pacific trading cards. Yes. Like how many people in the '90s like collected Pacific trading cards, which started right here in Edmonds. Nice. Yeah, see, I bought that there. That was the last time at home. I got my my Gwyn rookie. So, I got my I got my tops one here. Oh, see, I need to go buy one. I, I definitely need to go buy one. So, um, I, all right. What else we got? Junior Felix. Junior Again, Felix. One of those rookies that was supposed to be something. Yep. Yep. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, uh, he was Jose Cruz Jr. before Jose Cruz Jr. That's very true. Yes, he was. All right. Pat Tabler. <laughs> yep. Had a good mullet, a good, like real, like wispy blonde uh, toe head mullet, as I recall. But he was like the all time leader in like uh, pinch hit home runs or something like that. Remember that? He was known for being one of those pinch hitters who could always do that or hit grand slams. I can't remember what it was, but I have to remember it was one of the obscure stats because he was never an everyday player. And then who was that guy? There was a guy when I was, when I started watching baseball who was, I think he was like 40 or 41 at the time. Was it Lenny Harris used to do yeah. that? Yeah. He used, yeah. To, he used to be like, a, he was mostly used as like a pinch hitter. But he would just always get a hit when he would come into the game. <laughs> it was like, it was like crazy batting average, but like 
would only start like very occasionally and would come in as a pinch hitter normally. <laughs> Dave Anderson of the Dodgers? Yep. Oh, hum. Doesn't say a whole lot about him. So, all right. Well, uh, we'll have to send this one to Anika, but it's Lights Out Candlestick. candlestick. Oh. Nice. Yeah, that was the last last year. Or was, was it? Yeah. It was a World Series card. That's what it was. So this was uh, the, the World Series Earthquake. Yeah, wow. that's what it was. Yeah. Wow. So we're talking about baseball commissioners. And I, I said I remembered uh, A. Bartlett Giamani, but then there was Faye Vincent. But who was the National League? Who's the last National League president? League president? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bobby Brown? Well, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, no, he was American League. He was, I, I know he was American League because I've got a American League baseball right there from 1986. Um, <laughs> Peter Uberoff? No, he was the. He was the NFL. Yeah. Well, we'll have to look at that there because I yeah. thought it was somebody else and I can't remember who it was because it came up with, with Jacob um, and the huh. Brett Pine Tar incident. So, guys, what, what system would you say worked better? The, pre, the league presidents or the Major League Commissioner? Or are they pretty much the exact same? Would you say there's one system that worked better or, or one? Because it seems to me like the leagues would have had more character when they had individual presidents. Obviously, you had the DH in the American League and not in the National League, so they're kind of different styles of baseball. Um, and they would obviously, I would imagine, be quite differently run. You know, you're not going to have two people who are going to see things the same way all the time. Hmm. Well, I don't know. That's a tough one. Yeah, I'm trying to Google it. That's right. Keep the opening cards. We have Steve Wilson of the Cubs. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. He was a, so he was a, he was a rookie throwing with the Cubs when they traded for a closer Mitch Williams. Wild thing. Exactly. All right. Here, a longtime White Sox, Ron Kittle. Oh, so you know what? Actually, when I first started collecting baseball cards. The 1983 Fleer Ron Kittle card was one of the hottest cards in all of baseball. Um, I don't remember how, what, what window of time that that was, but the 83 Ron Kittle Fleer rookie card was hot. Well, so <laughs> really he, hot. It was crazy. He hit 35 home runs and had 100 RBIs. There you go. But he batted 254. So, yeah. <laughs> he, he, would, he would make $30 million a year in this, uh, this climate. <laughs> yeah, he would. Quite possibly. See, they don't have walks there because, of course, no one cared about walks at that point in time. Yeah. So we have Jose Rijo for the Reds. Rijo. Yeah. He, he was right good then. for a long time. Yeah, he was. So uh, he, he beat my A's, so I won't talk about him much. Oh, wait. Frank White? That's Frank White. Oh, long man. Royal. It was blurry. I was going to say, is that. Uh... That looked like almost uh, Willie Upshaw. But, yep, I see it now. William Peebles of uh, Huntington Batco has commented on the stream and has said Bill White was the National League president in 1990. There you go. There we go. He mentions Leonard Coleman as well. Yep, I recognize that name. Uh, Thank you, William. uh, Bill White, for sure. Thank you, William. All right. We've got a John Wetland rookie card. We pull there you card. go. 
Yeah. Is that playing guitar the... here? I'm trying to think. Uh, 1996 World Series MVP. Depth. <laughs> yeah. He was re reputed to have the finest curve in the Dodger organization. So, still right there. And then we've got Todd Worrell with the. Uh, now, the best part of that is his yeah, full man shoe. Look at that. <laughs> Man, that's a man shoe on that one. Yep. Do you, think you, went, you know what? It's picture day. I'm gonna shave the goatee and just go with the Fu Manchu. <laughs> he was a bouncer in the evenings on off days. Wow. He was a bouncer on his off days. All right, I was gonna say, hey, you never know. Like I said, the closing like work. that. We got Mark rookie, Mark Gardner for the expos. Love seeing those Expos uniforms. Oh, so the best part about opening up old cards is opening up Expos cards. I miss the Montreal Expos. For it's sure. It's had not... a character to them that the Nationals don't. I mean, the Nationals are great and stuff, yeah. but I miss the, the Expos. I miss their stadium. I just miss their uniform and their, their logo. They were just an old-style little train that could franchise yeah. that, you know, you couldn't help but root for. <laughs> and Vlad Guerrero made his name there. You know, he was like a Cool, yeah. So we don't have Mike Harkey. We have Mike Hartley. Mike Hartley. <laughs> yeah, don't, I don't remember Mike Hartley. After eight years in the minors, he, he, apparently, <laughs> if you spend eight years in the minors, you, you get a rated rookie card. <laughs> <laughs> they are making rookie cards for everybody. Like I said, yeah, just handing those out. Come on. And I remember this guy because I must have got about a thousand of his cards in the eighty-nine dollars. Luis de los Santos. Oh, yeah. Yep, I remember that one, too. Yeah, so apparently, yeah, no. The $89 said it. Luis is tall and opposite field hitter. That's actually not a good thing. If you're six foot five and you're hitting the ball the opposite field, that doesn't say much for your career. It's a lot <laughs> of, so, so, so it's like a lot of pop flies. Six foot five, you may be you pulling the ball and you're hitting home runs. And, you know, yep. if it says you're hitting opposite the field there, you're slapping the ball and trying to hope that you have the speed for it. That said, the uh, Giancarlo Stanton is six feet six, and he put, he sends the ball to the opposite field a lot, and he does okay. Yeah, but he also hits a lot of home runs. So it, uh, true, it's true. So Luis de los Santos, yeah, I've never, I've never heard him. His career high in home runs, despite playing at least 123 games a year, okay. was six. <laughs> six five? Six five, yeah. Had a lot seven. of holes in that swing, I imagine. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think they were waiting for that power to develop that never happened. <laughs> yeah. You want, yeah. Um, you want at least 20 from a guy his size in that number of games, don't you? Because you want over 162 games, a guy that size who swings the opposite field to knock the ball out. 30 to 35 times. Well, yeah. basically had the longest careers he did. I, I said, yeah. So, yeah. Sounds like he wasn't all that great, to be honest. No. <laughs> was he a high average hitter? Oh, gosh. Let me pull, pull us back out again. Uh, yeah. 303, 293, 307 in the minors, not in the pro, not in the MLB, but in the minors. Mm. But, you know, you're, I remember, I remember uh, years ago, I was reading a I was using a, an old like Ron Renicky uh, baseball card as my bookmark and, and uh, I'd been using it for 
a couple of different books, I guess. And finally, one night, I just decided to give Ron Renicky a look. What was this guy's career like? And I flipped the card over and saw that he, you know, he had had you know over a ten-year career. He was, you know, completely forgettable in every sense. But he played for, you know, over a dozen years in the major leagues. And and I'm like, what's to scoff at that? Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. So here's here's to, to obscurity, I guess. Well, he played two years with the Royals. I don't think he lasted much longer there because I think I think that ushered in the Mike Sweeney years. Uh-huh. <laughs> to become a major league baseball player, you need to be an elite of the elite. You know, to play at that level in the first place, to be great at the major league level, you need to be on a whole other planet entirely. You know, it's easy enough to say, "Oh, that guy only had this or that," but. The journey that guy had to go through to make it there makes him one of the best baseball players in the goddamn world. Like, you know, right. it's just the way, it's just a right. matter of fact. It's just the way it is. Unless you're right. Mike Piazza, who just was such an anomaly, who was kind of chosen late on because, what was it, Tommy Lasorda's his father, his, his godfather. godfather. Yeah. And it just happened that that guy could smash baseballs for a mile. <laughs> with that with that great big long swing that probably Luis mm-hmm. did, it wasn't too different from Luis de los Santos probably mm-hmm. <laughs> but he could pull yeah. the ball for home runs True he enough. pulled the ball yeah yeah he could drag it Cat, are we going to catch up after this or are you need a break yeah yeah for sure okay cool I'll, I'll call you in five minutes but anyways always good to chat with you <laughs> we always can chat for hours I'm looking yeah. forward to next year when I'm back over we can uh, actually catch you properly and have a Ronye with you yeah we'll head down to pizza and pipes <laughs> <laughs> as, as long as you take me around in your car and we cruise to Kirkland waterfront and then we're good <laughs> yep you got it man well thanks a lot you guys and and truly you know what uh, um, you you have added such a, a, a great element to this community. I'm not going to say to this campaign, to this community. You, what you are doing every night is is helping build this community. Um, don't don't uh, don't think um, for one second that that what you're doing is not a, a huge contribution um, to what we're doing. So, thank you guys. Much appreciated, Tad. Thank you once again, one more time for letting us be part of this. Uh, yeah. It's been thrilling. It's been phenomenal. Um, let's say, uh, let's get you back on the show another time uh, to shoot the shit some more and open some more, some more cards. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll show words. you my hairy cheaty. <laughs> <laughs> I showed some. I showed someone my hairy cheaty one night. It didn't go so well. <laughs> the Friday night show. the context. <laughs> On Friday night, we showed the Dick Pull card, you know, and we're all right. <laughs> it's, better than you show, it's better than you showing your pasty fucking... Do you have a Woody Held? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who would love that name? My mate, Ryan. Um, I like, we did... I have... uh, sorry, yeah. I, I, I uh, convinced some of my workmates at the time to... Um, do fantasy baseball with me uh, just for a laugh and my mate Ryan just drafted people that were that had funny names like Aaron Bummer was his favourite one he's like oh his name's Bummer <laughs> and it's like just all of his teammates fell out and I was like man if only we had been doing this in the time of like Dick Pole and, and people like that uh, he I, got a bit of a chuckle out of that I uh at the end of I, I haven't played fantasy baseball in a lot of years but at the end and I never ever won 
but at the end of every season when I was just woefully out of first place, I would dump all my players and just um, have a team full of guys named Jose. <laughs> if you're named Jose, you're on my team. That's amazing. <laughs> Thanks again, Todd. All right, guys. Thank you. Have a good one. Cool. Bye, man. Bye. Bye.